Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, and joined this week with the one and only Mike the Biff Man Long. How you doing, Mike? I haven't heard that reference for a while since we came <laughs> up with that a few years it, ago. It's, oh. it's still on your voicemail. I gave you a call the other day, and uh, you know it, it went to voicemail, and I was greeted with uh, the Biff Man Long. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that was still on there. So, <laughs> did you ever see the graphic that I think Adam? I think Adam made it, but it was Biff Man as a superhero. Yes, I did. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I can't even. I probably haven't listened to that voicemail greeting in in years. So that's funny <laughs> that it's still on there. But this man kind of caught on, though, didn't it? it oh uh, yeah. Students are constantly uh, referring to Biff Man or the Biff, now the Biff crew, because <laughs> there's so many of us involved at this point. But yeah, that's funny. <laughs> well, we have an awesome subject uh, today, Mike, though it's probably, I can already predict it's going to give us some headaches updating all the curriculum and, uh, you know, adding all this in. But Congress was kind enough to hit us with Secure Act 2.0. I'm sure a lot of people listening remember the first Secure Act going into effect and all the changes it made to the industry. A lot of changes we're still feeling <laughs> and still dealing with. I know it was a uh, massive overwrite of the CFP curriculum. We had to do a lot of uh, work getting all the materials up to date. And, you know, Congress is coming back for round two. Yeah, they drive me crazy, uh, you know. And at one time, I would love to just sit in on these committee meetings. Mm -hmm. where they come up with all these twists and layers and exceptions and all that. Cause <laughs> I just shake my head at, at the way these things come down and, and all the little nuances. I'm like, come on people. Yeah. <laughs> this could be so much more simple, but 2.0 on the secure act is another one of those that has layers and different effective dates. And uh, it, it just makes me nuts, I guess, as a content writer and question writer and, uh, it, it is a major pain, as you just uh, said. But my my focus um, when this stuff happens in my career, I honestly I don't study the future year stuff because yeah. I what I've seen in my career is they lay out these sweeping changes with all of this twists and turns, and some of it never comes to be. It gets repealed uh, by the next administration before it ever became law. So I don't study stuff that is to take place next year or the year after or in 10 years. I only study it as it is right now. And and uh, and that's the only thing we try to overlap in these sessions often, particularly when I'm involved, uh, the overlap between private practice and the CFP exam. And so the only thing remotely possible to be tested on the CFP exam forthcoming with 2.0 is is the stuff that happened when it passed at the end of last year, but also that was effective in 2023. Nothing else would be even remotely testable at this time. So in looking at this, um, thinking about visiting with you today, I thought I'm just, I think we ought to just talk about a handful of things that are right now real um, yeah. in practice and for the, for the CFP exam. Yeah. So if if you're listening to this right now and you're sitting uh, for your exam in July of 2023, I wouldn't be freaking out by any means. 
Um, you know, even though it this technically could be tested on, I still think the CFP board's gonna, you know, hold this at arm's length. They're not really gonna get into this nitty-gritty just because it is so new. And that is traditionally what the CFP board do- has done in the past with things like the CARES Act and the Secure Act and these other bills that took effect. We usually don't see them start to test on it until the year afterwards. So at the earliest. Yeah, at, at the earliest. At the earliest, because um, the really sweeping things that happened with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, that took at least a year right. to make it into the uh, CFP exam. So I think you're exactly right, Jerry. Don't panic if you're a CFP student on uh, that this is going to be all over your exam. It would just be shocking if, honestly, if any of this uh, <laughs> got tested. But some of these things that we're going to touch on today have been tested in the past so it'll be interesting to to learn if um their their previous rules they're the previous even exam. test the previous rules now in yep. this next exam cycle so uh you know they'll never confirm or deny that so we won't really ever be f- for sure but um so we'll see but yeah, yeah there's just a handful of things i thought well this is really good to know right now yeah, um, definitely good to know for your your real life clients. And certainly if you are still going through the education or, you know, you're planning on taking the exam in November or 2024, then, you know, you are going to want to have your ears perked up a little bit because you you are more likely to be tested on, you know, what we're going to be covering in today's episode. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, so yeah, so the first the first couple of things are very relevant uh, and do get into that category of this has been tested in the past. Um, but the first two things having to do with required minimum distributions. Um, yes. There were a couple of interesting changes uh, with with that. So I thought maybe that would be a good way to start this, if that's okay with you. Yeah, no, I think that's you know probably the one of the most hard hitting. Uh, areas that got updated, especially this uh, this first one, the increase in RMD age. Yeah, pushing it out, pushing it out. Uh, and and um, I, I, I like it, actually. I like this. It went, um, you know, it was at 70 and a half for years and years and years and years. And, uh, and then most recently to 72. And now with Secure Act 2.0, um, in 2023, that new age is 73 to commence RMDs. Uh, and this would be, of course, IRAs or qualified plan uh, distribution. So they just keep pushing it out. And in that law, it's it's scheduled to uh, to be pushed out even further mm-hmm. um, in, in the future. But again, I'm, I'm not focused on that right now, but I'm just mainly looking because it impacts clients right now. It's now age 73. Now, this doesn't impact those who were 72 or older as of December 31st, 2022. It's not now that they can stop and wait. Uh, If they were already 72 last uh, last year, then they're already in RMD status. But for folks that, um, uh, you know, only are turning 72 this year, um, then they can now delay until they're until they're 73. So that impacts a lot of our clients. Yeah, that is that is really big. 
Um, I do like that they are keeping it to the full years because I remember when I entered the industry, that half year RMD aged always caused so many problems with so many clients being oh, confused yeah. about when they had to do it or not. So I, totally I like that it's uh, still a whole year. <laughs> I just think it's funny that they keep increasing the RMD age, yet uh, Americans' life expectancy is actually going down. So American life expectancy is down to 77 years. RMD is at 73, and RMD is slated to keep increasing. And if uh, trends continue with life expectancy, we might actually see uh, RMD age and life expectancy age uh, meet somewhere. In the <laughs> yeah, you have to start taking out when you die. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's on the horizon. But that's an interesting comment because part of that will also be, I totally believe that... Um, the full retirement age of social security will continue to be pushed out uh, yeah. as well. It's been sitting, you know, uh, from those born in 1960 and on uh, it became age 67, but I'll be shocked if that doesn't change in the coming years to push that out uh, to a, to a later age as well. Um, and I've seen, you know, no proposed legislation on that, but it just seemed the trend is everything getting pushed. I just think it's funny that the argument with that is like, oh, well, people are living longer, so we need to push it out. But it's like, well, actually, people are not living longer. People are actually, you know, their life expectancy is going down ever since uh, 2020 and has continued to go to. So uh, what was the explanation there, Congress? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why wouldn't you just love to sit in on one of those committee meetings and just hear some of the logic? It if there if it exists right um, why we would do this and uh and not no that. we're we're totally not running out of money that's not why we're increasing the age <laughs> yeah no no never uh so anyway we've got clients right now that this uh impacts that maybe they really didn't want to have to take um an rmd they're sitting at 72 right now and maybe that's a relief for them if, um uh, particularly if they're still working, which as a lot of people are, um, that that added uh, income they wouldn't be spending would just be taxed. So we'll see how this how this plays out. Um, but yet, if you look at Social Security, uh, the trend is to take it later, but still the majority of folks are taking it before full retirement age, I believe. So uh, that's interesting to me. Um, so I don't know how this might dovetail in with that of uh, claiming Social Security a little bit earlier, but being able to wait on the RMD. It's just, and it's so personal, don't you think? Yeah, it, it really has to really go client by client on what the best ages for all of these are and, and, and why we have to do comprehensive discussions and fact gathering to see, okay, how does all this play out for this client? Exactly. Um, this next update, I'm actually a pretty big fan of. I always hated this part of the RMD law because in my mind, I felt it unfairly targeted the, uh, you know, less well off the, the less organized, uh, seniors. And that's the, uh, failure to take your RMD excise tax, which was always really brutal. It was 50% of the failed RMD distribution was the X was taxed, you know, and when you think about the type of people who miss their RMDs, it's usually not, you know, the super wealthy who are purposely avoiding their RMDs because they want to avoid it. It's usually the people who 
you know, they don't have a financial advisor because they can't afford one or the senile or the ones who, you know, just don't have a hand on their finances because of one reason or another. And they're usually the ones that are most vulnerable and least able to, you know, pay this really hefty tax. So it is still hefty, but it is at least being reduced a bit. It's going from a 50% uh, penalty down to a 25% penalty. And they said uh, it would be further reduced down to a 10% penalty if the failure is corrected at the end of the second year. Yeah, that's interesting. And 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 I think, honestly, I think it, it should never be more than 10% anyway. Right. Uh, but now if it's caught early enough, then it can get back to the uh, down to just 10%. But you're exactly right with all those comments. It's just brutal. And, and for those that, as you say, don't have a financial advisor and just forget, uh, then they were just getting hammered. And 25% is still pretty darn steep. But Hopefully, those who forget uh, or don't take enough, you know, one of the problems with this that created penalties was confusion over the ability to um, delay one's first RMD until April 1st of the year following Mm -hmm. um, the year they reached RMD age. Um, And then the problem that, that that created was clients not realizing that if they choose to do that, then that next year's RMD has to come out by December 31st of that same year. Yeah. They didn't realize they had a double up. They didn't catch that. And and so they were they were late on that second one that needed to happen. And that's the money they got hit with the 50%. So hopefully more people will get advisors. And or at least their banks or someone is are, are keeping them apprised of this and fix it within uh, two years because that's a nice uh, that's a nice change I think. So that is that is a nice nice update. Uh, so what else did you see that was uh, interesting, Mike, in in these pages and pages of uh, legalese? Yeah, there's um, you know there's a lot there's a lot in here and one of them I started to to highlight to talk with you and then I kind of crossed it off but I'll just put it out there this qualified longevity annuity contracts mm-hmm. they've increased that dollar limit from 125,000 to 200,000 but yet honestly I've not met one person that even did it at 125 yeah uh, that's just such a major trade off to say my my $200,000 is gone but I have this lifetime monthly income on the backside, I, maybe there are advisors out there that have tons of clients that do this. I just have not seen it. So it's always interesting to me uh, that that this continues to be thrown out there. Mm-hmm. And now it's been expanded to 200,000 when I just don't think there were very many takers it, at 25. It makes me think if like one of these Congress met people on the uh, committee does it and it's like, you know, their own personal bone. Because, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of a client actually taking advantage of this. You know, I've just, I've never seen it in the wild. Yeah. I mean, logically I understand that is like, Oh, well this assures that income uh, down, down the road. But when you start crunching the math of what the uh, internal rate of return is on, on giving up that lump sum in exchange for that monthly check, the internal rate of return is not real high and, and typically is easily duplicated or bettered just by continuing to manage the money. 
Yeah, just keep it in your IRA. <laughs> you know, you get still that, take that income out. You know, but uh, it, especially with interest uh, rates increasing, you know, we're you know maybe this made more sense when interest rates were you know back at two percent, but you know we're we're past that. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I, I don't know, and, and then I joked over the years since this started uh, popping up that that looks like lobby money at work to me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know that. Oh, hey, hey, let's sell a, let's sell annuities inside of this, and okay, that's a good idea. And, and here's a big campaign contribution. Um, so I don't know. That's that's not a nice thing to say, but I I don't know. I it's always confused me why why that's a big deal. Um, <laughs> so if you're out there and you have tons of people that do it, I'd love to hear from you and just like how they're doing it and and what they love about it and. Do they understand that, you know, down the road, that lump sum isn't still there? I mean, I would love to hear uh, all, all of that because I just haven't experienced it since this became a thing. Yeah, for sure. Definitely let us know. But the uh, the other thing that caught my eye, Jerry, is this um, special needs trust as a beneficiary. Yeah, you were talking about this before the show. So, yeah, what's going on with the special needs trusts? Well, um you know, we went through the change um, with Secure Act about you know squashing the ability to do um, generational spreads for uh, beneficiary situations for IRAs, um, you know, stretch IRAs as we called them, um, and and implemented was that ten-year drain if one isn't an eligible designated beneficiary. Mm -hmm. um, an eligible designated beneficiary is the or, or the only beneficiaries that could base distributions in the old manner, the old stretch manner on their own life expectancy. Uh, no one else could. So uh, an adult, um, a child beneficiary uh, uh, of a parent um, fell then under the 10-year uh, drain where they had to um, liquidate uh, that account uh, within 10 years. So it just expedites the collection of taxes. Um, so a disabled person was one of the categories uh, for eligible designated beneficiary, along with the spouse, uh, a minor child, uh, a disabled person, or someone who is younger than the, um, than the decedent account owner, but not more than 10 years younger. Those were your categories. Um, but outside of that was if the money was going to be paid to a trust. And uh, in that situation, it was going to be subject to that 10-year drain. And so disadvantaged in that would be particularly special needs trust beneficiaries. Um, but now that's been fixed to where if the beneficiary of the IRA uh, is a special needs trust, then it is now considered an eligible designated uh, beneficiary. Now that's a logical connection too, because the beneficiaries uh, of a special needs trust are uh, disabled or chronically ill individuals. Um, so that just makes so much sense that they too, the trust would be included and uh, wouldn't need to be drained in 10 years. Because in many instances, um, those disabled or chronically ill individuals who are beneficiaries of the special needs trust are gonna need it longer than 10 years. Uh, so I liked this change a lot to help those folks be able to spread out uh, those distributions uh, over a much longer uh, time period.
A couple other things that I thought were really interesting. The new exceptions to the 10% penalty. So, you know, it's it's something we've driven home in class a lot is, you know, you got to be aware of the penalty. Big ones are, you know, first time home purchase, you know, spending it on college education, a um, couple other things, you know, medical expenses, uh, things like that. And with Secure Act 2.0, we're adding a couple uh, additional exceptions to the list of reasons that you can take money out of your IRA before retirement age and not have to pay that 10% penalty. Yeah. What were your favorites there that caught your eye as you looked at that list? Uh, well, for myself, just per, uh, personally, because of where I am in my life, the uh, the ones that I was looking at were things involving the first time home purchase. So now they have a uh, new clause where if you take money out of the IRA for a first time home purchase and uh, something goes wrong and a, there is a uh, disaster that prevents you from purchasing that house, you can repay that money uh, into the IRA within 180 days. Um, so personally, myself, I'm looking at uh, buying a house, my first time home purchase coming up in uh, the next couple months. So that's that was just one that really, uh, you know, perked my ears. Um, another one is the qualified birth and adoption ex expenses. I think that's one that is going to probably be just as popular as the first time home purchase. Yeah, I, I agree that um, that that's an excellent uh, addition to the lineup of, uh, of those exemptions. I also flagged uh, when I read through this um, for uh, terminally ill individuals were added to the list too. They could, and honestly, um, it should be. I don't know why that wasn't the case in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and my question for them would have been the, the fine line because disability of the account owner has been on there a long time, um, right. but not specifically the reference to terminally ill. So I'm like, wow, would, were, were hairs being split like that? Uh, you know, that, oh, no, we're penalizing you. Yes, disability was one of the exceptions, but not terminally ill. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, but this isn't something that ever jumped out at me as as, as being egregiously missing, right? Uh, but it's great that now that's been put in there and, and it doesn't have to be a debate over is the person disabled or not mm -hmm. if they're terminally uh, ill. And and. The time period is um, longer than other things that involve provisions. Uh, this uh, is life expectancy. Um, you know, death is expected within 84 months. So it's a seven-year window, which is longer than things like viatical settlements, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I did notice that 84-month time frame was, uh, was generous. Um, going back, I noticed, though, on the qualified birth and adoption one, did they di uh, dictate a dollar amount with it? Usually I would expect something like this to have a dollar amount, but I don't see anything in here about it being limited, you know, like to $10,000 or something like that, like with the uh, first time home purchase. Um, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I I guess we'd have to pull up the Secure Act of 2019 mm -hmm. to see um, to, to see if anything was in there and then improved upon um, uh so I don't know the answer to that, Jerry. Yeah, it might actually be unlimited. Just looking at this wording, because it's it has to be for 
qualified birth and adoption expenses. So I guess maybe it it's like the tuition, uh, the tuition exception, where as long as it's a qualified expense, it's covered. There's no dollar limit. Well, actually, tuition's also limited. Uh, is it not? I, I need to look that up. It's <laughs> I I get so confused with all the numbers lying around. I forget which ones have the limits or not. <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully that's exactly what it is. Just if it's in that category, they're not going to artificially cap it. Um, but I, I'm happy for folks adopting um, and having children that, you know, this is a, a source. I mean, obviously you would hope that that you can leave retirement money alone uh, for retirement. But, um, you know, when that's the only source, then this is great that it's not going to slap another penalty uh, on on top of it. I mean, the taxation is still there. Um, and then this this provision too um, makes available the ability to put the money back into the account. Yes, uh, is which, which is interesting. Um, I'm thinking of you know like hardship withdrawals from 401k plans. It's great that it can be accessed like that, but there's no way to get it back in there other than going back and increasing um, one's ongoing deductions. But here there's provision that they can actually repay that. Um, so that's kind of cool too, to restore it as retirement money after using it um, for uh, birth or adoption expenses. So these are all, I think, very worthwhile um, additions to the list that's been out there uh, quite a while. Was there anything else um, in, um, there was maybe one more thing that um, caught my eye. Um, oh, here, um, uh, return of excess contributions and earnings. Um, if one, you know, has, it makes an excess contribution and, and it's distributed with earnings, um, it, we would have tax, but also that was subject to penalty as well. Uh, but now that can be reversed out when, in, um, if it's corrected uh, by the by the due date of the tax return, then that that would be exempt from the penalty as well. So that's that's nice. If somebody at the end of the year was isn't eligible to have made the contribution that they made, then this is a way to not get hit with another ten percent for having to distribute that money. Right. Uh, prior to prior to fifty nine and a half. So. Uh, some nice enhancements to that list yeah. of, uh, of, ex of exceptions. Going to uh, the other side of the coin too, for our uh, listeners who have lots of business clients, there is also a pretty nice uh, update for business owners looking to start a retirement plan. Uh, there's a new tax credit that offsets 100% of the startup cost uh, of setting up a new retirement plan if you have less than 100 employees. So if you have those small business uh, clients and you know they're thinking about setting up a simple or a SEP or something like that, and they've been hemming and hawing because they don't want to pay the fees, you can just tell them, hey, don't worry, you get a dollar for dollar credit for it on your taxes. You know, it's no no skin off your back. You can set this up, and your employees will be happy, and and you'll have a retirement plan for you know basically free for the first three years. That's a good point. Um, they dabbled with that uh, over the years recent years, but the, the credit was capped out at such a low number 
that I never saw it as being real a real incentive for the that small business to go ahead and put something in. It just it it, it just wasn't enough. Prior prior was fifty percent of startup cost up to a cap of five thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. And now it's one hundred percent of startup costs with a maximum of one thousand dollars per employee. Per employee. Which is big. Yeah. So that's sweet. Um, and I like that. I um, um early in my career and then for a couple of decades, that's how I made my living was doing retirement plans in primarily small and mid-size. Uh, businesses and those type of things didn't exist. So it was a big decision for some of the smaller companies to bite the bullet and do something. I wish this had been in place all the years I was setting up plans. Yeah. I mean, it's um, a, I, I like it's that. a really, you know, powerful argument to, you know, if you, if your clients are giving you pushback saying they don't want to foot the bill for setting up a retirement plan, you know, now you can show it's like, listen, you really don't have to pay anything for the first couple of years and your employees are going to be really happy about it. Yeah. And, and speaking of SEPs and simples, um, that was another piece I liked seeing um, to kind of parallel what was already happening on the qualified plan side. And that is starting in 2023 um, employer contributions, um, to a SEP and employer or employee contributions to a simple can be done uh, as a Roth. Yeah. And that didn't exist uh, before. It's been around for a while with qualified plans where their qualified plan can have a Roth account inside of it to use after-tax monies. Didn't exist for these couple of IRA-funded um, plans, a SEP and, and the simple. So now in the right situation uh, for someone tax wise, that could be done as a Roth. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. So what it was, this was such a long list of stuff we went through to look <laughs> at. Um, uh, oh, I know. I, I can't say that um, I ever really thought a lot about this next piece, but, um, but once I read it in, in secure act two point, I was like, Oh, okay. Well then that's a very good thing. Um, but that's a statute of limitations for excess IRA contributions and required minimum distribution failures. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, and again, I never really thought very deeply about this before that, um, that there was a three year statute of limitations on that. But the catch in the tax code was, is that statute of limitations didn't even begin until the client had filed form 5329, which is what reports that situation, right? Right. Uh, so it's one of those that this may go on for a long time. And then it's like, oh my goodness, uh, we missed an RMD or I had an excess IRA contribution in there. So they're in a position of getting tagged for um, uh, a lot of taxes and penalties um, because the statute never really started. Um, until that form was filed. But now, um, but now the that statute of limitations starts um, with the filing of their 1040. Uh, it's it's not linked to the form 5329 now. So effectively, the good news for clients affected by this are it's going to shorten the time period. It's going to shorten 
um, the time period for when they could be subject to, uh, you know, to those penalties. So again, something I never really paid much attention to, but I thought, well, gosh, that's going to benefit some people uh, if they filed their taxes, but didn't realize they had a violation here with an excess contribution or a missed RMD. And now that years later, they're still in a position to get tagged with a, a big penalty on that. Here, at least there's a time frame in which that would apply. So I, uh, I highlighted that um, uh, as well. Excellent. Yeah. So that, you know, just little kind of quality of life improvements, which are uh, nice to see. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's one thing if, uh, if, if a person does something to try to evade taxes. Um, but a lot of it, like you said earlier, it's, there's just some mistakes that get made. And you hate to see people really get pounded um, when it was just an honest mistake. So some of these things are really, I think, going to help folks. Then the last thing on uh, on this list that we were looking at um, that that I highlighted was um, has to do with the IRA charitable distribution. Yeah, that's a big uh, one. Rules. So um, for a while, we've had the ability to do a, a qualified charitable distribution from an IRA up to a hundred thousand dollars as a direct transfer. It didn't have to be distributed to the individual then. Um, be claimed as income, then deducted uh, as an itemized deduction, that direct transfer uh, could go directly to the charity uh, itself. And that's been a great thing. A lot of people, uh, wealthier people, take advantage of that, uh, $100,000 uh, to do that. But what's been added now, uh, additionally, is $50,000 a year could be transferred uh, to a charitable remainder trust, um, which is the way a lot of uh, folks make their charitable contributions, but it wasn't part of that qualified charitable distribution piece before. Before it went directly to the charity, uh, now it can come through the charitable remainder trust. So that's yep. that's pretty cool too. They, I think they could actually do both. Yeah, the you can do Kratz and Kratz. And Kratz and Kratz are definitely things that we have seen tested uh, on the exam. So I would not be surprised if in the future, you know, this piece of, you know, IRA distributions gets intermingled with Kratz and Kratz now. Because um, that that is a, a pretty popular testing topic. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and I know for a fact that uh, the existing qualified charitable distribution rule of 100000 in a direct transfer to the charity, that absolutely has been tested. Yep. So it would make sense that CFP Ward would pick up on this enhancement to the fact that, yes, the money is going to a trust, a, a charitable remainder trust, um, but yet we now can do it in the same manner as a direct transfer from the IRA. So it's, it's, it, this is all positive stuff. Yeah, for sure. And a footnote on that, on this, um, for both of these is that um, starting in 2023, those amounts. So now the hundred thousand amount that goes direct or the 50,000 to a uh, Crater um, crut are going to start being indexed uh, for, for inflation. So those amounts will begin to go up on what one can, uh, one can do here. So you know, I just, this is all some positive stuff. I just think they overcomplicate it, but some of these ideas happening are, are very worthwhile for folks. Awesome. Well, 
that is about all we had on our docket for uh, Secure Act 2.0. There is definitely way more to the bill um, that we did not have time to get to. If you are interested, I would definitely say go to the source material and really dig into it. Uh, but you know, as Mike said at the top of the show, some of it is not slated to come into effect for several years. If if it ever does, you know, you know, uh, the winds of Congress can always change. Um, so we will see what the future holds, but you know, what we covered today is going to be the big ones to be on the lookout for, for, you know, at least the 2024 CFP exam. Yeah. And, and as, as we said at the top, uh, these are, these are things that, um, tend to have some overlap that yeah, there, we think these would be very testable for the CFP exam, but also you've got clients that this applies to right now yes whereas yeah. some of the other stuff may never ever make it into the C cfp exam and the number of clients that you have that it really impacts is pretty limited so we don't uh, didn't want to spend time on that kind of thing in the uh, in the podcast definitely well awesome mike great episode thanks for joining me always a pleasure to sit down and chat with you and for all of our listeners good luck uh if you are studying for the july exam and we will see you all soon thanks jerry always great to to be a guest anytime anytime have a good one everyone Thank you.